Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Sacrifice to the inhuman creature. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 10, Cowan, Swain, and Ross, recorded after the long Easter weekend, stupefied by the significant snowfall we've had, even though it's April 19th, 2022. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail. Check out his incredible album again on Spotify and Bandcamp when you get a chance. Today's intro is from the song Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature, and our outro is Late Bloomer. Thanks for joining me today. As usual, we have lots of corrections to begin with. Uh, in the last episode's interview, I, I misspoke. I called the Hotel in the Shining a mansion. It was not a mansion. It was, of course, the fancy haunted Overlook Hotel. My apologies to all the staff and visitors at the Overlook for my mischaracterization of your facilities and blood-filled elevators. In the last episode, I also said that poor lighting on a green screenshot looks like rheumatitis in your eye, which isn't a thing. Of course, I meant to say rheumatoid arthritis, which isn't what I actually was referring to at all, because I don't know what words mean. I think I meant, like, just cataracts, which is when there's damage or a change to the tissue that makes up your eye's lens, and this is what I meant to signify with the words rheumatitis of the eye. Uh, although, there's no way you'd know that, because none of the words actually signify cataracts, and that's my mistake. My apologies for the misunderstanding. This is what you get for trying to learn things from... Gremlins 2 The New Batch. You see, I read the novelization of Gremlins 2 The New Batch because that's awesome. And they describe Mr. Wing, the old shopkeeper, as having roomy old eyes. R-H-E-U-M-Y. Now, having seen the movie, Key Luke, who plays Mr. Wing, has this white eye that looks like something you'd see out of a zombie movie, where there's like a white film over the pupil and it's cool. When the novelization describes him as having roomy old eyes, I figured that's what it was called when they went white like that. But what it really means is watery, that he had watery old eyes for your information. So all these years later, whipping out of my back pocket the expression of rheumatitis of the eye, I felt quite pleased with myself. I haven't been able to use the word since I learned it. I say that in air quotes. But then listening to the interview after I recorded it, I figured, wait, isn't room something to do with muscles? And isn't itis the Latin suffix for inflammation? And wait a minute, none of this sounds right after all. And so... What I really meant was poor lighting when you're filming on a green screen can look like cataracts. Doesn't that make more sense than a nonsensical non-thing that I said in the last episode? My apologies. I'll spare you the rest of the dumb corrections I had planned for this week because this one required way too much explanation. Rheumatitis of the eye. We have dinosaur news. Titanosaurs nesting. Published in Scientific Reports in March 2022, the paper First Titanosaur Dinosaur Nesting Sites from the Lake Cretaceous of Brazil, describes yet another nesting site that continues to demonstrate the generalist nesting behavior using different paleo environments and strategies to ensure their longevity and survival. Titanosaurs are a diverse group of sauropods which survived to the dinosaur extinction and include some of the largest land animals known. They had small and somewhat more elongated heads compared with other sauropods with large nostrils and nasal bones which formed head crests. They also had small spatulate teeth and titanosaurs are known to have average sauropod neck lengths, 
whip-like tails, though less whip-like than diplodocids, and stocky forelimbs that were longer than their hind limbs. They are also known to have no digits on their hands, walking on horseshoe-shaped stumps. And many species had armored skin with bead-like scales surrounding other larger scales. This paper describes eggs belonging to a more derived species of Titanosauria called the Lithostrochia, which conclusively feature osteoderms and had distinct diagnostic caudal, or tail, vertebrae. The eggs are close to spherical in shape, and think of them like as close to 10 centimeters in diameter, give or take a few. This paper provides a description of a here-before-unreported paleoenvironment and locality, a boreal nesting site in Brazil's Serra da Galga Formation, which is part of the Bauru group. The paper further supports the hypothesis that titanosaurs were burrow nesters, with clear evidence of the, quote, first colonial nesting and breeding area of titanosaur dinosaurs in Brazil. Titanosaur nesting sites are also known from Spain, France, Romania, India, and, quote, especially Argentina, says the paper. The paleoenvironment is the most boreal locality known in South America, and is a similar paleolatitude to the one found in India, the paper says. The burial nesting strategy incubated the eggs in, quote, specific conditions under environmental source heat, says the paper. Quote, these would have been commonly chosen nesting conditions by Lithostrocian titanosaurs. During Cretaceous times, titanosaurs lived on every continent, even Antarctica. The worldwide evolutionary success of titanosaurs was due, among other things, to the great quasi-general adaptive behavior to nest in colonial nesting areas in several environments. They're also known to have nested in arid, or think dry or desert-like regions, and hydrothermal, which I think means wet and volcanically heated environments, along with this forested description from Brazil. T-Rex's Tiny Arms, another new paper published in Acta Paleontologica Polonica's first quarter edition titled Why Tyrannosaurid Forelimbs Were So Short, an integrative hypothesis, suggests that tyrannosaurs had tiny arms because big arms would be chomped off. Why did the forelimbs become so short? What did the animals use such short forelimbs for, if for anything? Many hypotheses on the tiny arms suggest what they may have been used for, but author Kevin Padian says this overlooks the major question as to why. His problem was, with what selective pressures could have led for Tyrannosaurus to evolve shorter limbs rather than what did they do with their shorter limbs once they had them. He argues that it wasn't a specific function of the forelimbs being selected, but rather another crucial adaptation of the animal profiting from forelimb reduction. Using multiple lines of inquiry, like phylogenetic, ontogenetic, taphonomic, and social lines of evidence, he hypothesized that behavioral ecology led to the reduction in arm size, which is tough because behavior doesn't really fossilize. To quote the paper, the great skull and jaws provided all the necessary predatory mechanisms, and during group feeding on carcasses, limb reduction was selected to keep the forelimbs out of the way of the jaws of large conspecific predators avoiding injury, loss of blood, amputation, infection, and death. Simply put, tyrannosaurs and abelosaurs and carcharodontosaurs continued to evolve reduced arm sizes because there was less chance that their arms were going to be bitten off while doing regular tyrannosaurus things around other tyrannosaurs. The author tested his hypothesis by reviewing tyrannosaur body parts that, quote, may have been closer to the depredation of a carcass than to more distal parts, meaning things like the mouth, but not the tail and checking for things like bite marks on other tyrannosaurs. Tyrannosaur heads, a hand, and feet, and an ilium, ooh, bore tooth marks from other tyrannosaurs, but not the arms. Reducing the arm size provided overriding benefits to tyrannosaurs, namely greater body integrity during feeding, 
rather than selective pressures to reduce the arms to provide some function, because ultimately those dinky arms don't perform any function better than better arms do. No selective pressure would choose to use tiny arms rather than better arms, argues the author. So think of a Tyrannosaurus feeding on a, on a carcass or something like that, and just, if your hands got in the way, can you imagine them like snapping at each other? Pretty neat stuff. Joining me today is filmmaker Gavin Michael Booth. Gavin is a Canadian-born director whose film, music, video, and commercial work has been featured around the globe in theaters, on television, and online. His work includes collaborations with Third Eye Blind, NBC Universal, Sony Pictures, Bloomhouse, the Royal Bank of Canada, and more. Does that sound about right? Sounds really good. Uh, Gavin and I met a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when he landed on top of my head after being swallowed into the Sarlacc pit, and then he challenged me to an epic rap battle before our deaths, which led the Sarlacc to feel great indigestion, and thus we were disgorged and our lives were spared. So Gavin has gone on to have a fascinating career in escaping from rap battles and also in film. So thank you for being here today. You know, if, if not for that Sarlacc in realizing my uh, ineptitude of being a rapper, I might have never gone down the path of film. So ultimately I have to <laughs> thank the stomach acid of a space monster. So, you know, much indebted. <laughs> and it was your fault because uh, my rapping was good. He was going to totally eat us because my rapping was fine. At that point that we were swallowed and I was being slowly digested over a thousand years, I had, <laughs> I had given up hope. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in the right mindset to, to bust out a winning rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> so um, going back to things that happened to us a long, long time ago, um, you were just telling me that you have actually gone to see every Jurassic Park film on opening night. I, I, I am old enough to have seen them all in the cinema, yes. Now, you were telling me the story about getting a driver's license, too. Would that have been for the second film? No, no, the first film. The first film? Because, so, correct me if I'm wrong on these days, but it was it was like May of 93, right? When June 93. June of 93, yeah. yeah. So it was right before finishing whatever grade I was in, in 11th grade. I was uh, in the process of getting my driver's license. I had my driver's test booked. I ended up having to move the test, but I had asked this girl... Tremel Lambert's High School and Amherstburg, if, if she wanted to go on a date to see the movie. And then when I explained that I wasn't going to have my license yet, but my parents would still drive us, because you, you had to drive into Windsor at that point, which is a half hour drive away to see a movie. There was mm -hmm. no local cinema. Uh, it was a, a hard no. Uh, I got my license shortly after that, but I did still go to the movie that night with a friend and uh, had my mind blown and uh, is remains to this day one of the best films that i've ever seen and one of the most rewatchable films ever made mm -hmm. yeah you can totally get down for jurassic park when it's around yeah anytime it, it, it's one of those that's the the remote droppers like that shawshank a few others where like if it if it if you're scrolling past it on tv and it's on you drop the remote and you finish it from whatever point it's at that's amazing and you can't you couldn't be more right so you, your girlfriend your proposed girlfriend wasn't into chaperones <laughs> which is too bad but uh yeah <laughs> Uh, what were your, I guess, impressions when you first, I mean, when I went in there, I remember the opening scene where there's the cage and there's the crane and you've got Muldoon and he's just, yeah, shoot her! And it's, shoot her! Uh, it's fading away and it transitions in that kind of gradient uh, where the audio fades off as well. And I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> I remember specifically what? going, I think I may be too young for this movie. Here we go. And, uh, I had I had read the book. Yeah. I had seen everything Steven Spielberg had made. You know, I was I was movie obsessed by that age already. You know, a, a, a few of my very first 
movies the very first movie i ever saw in a cinema was et mm-hmm. so spielberg fan from day one uh you know I, I got to see temple of doom in the cinema i, I saw uh, last crusade at the drive-in uh you know so that spielberg lucas era of just their dynasty of the, the late 70s and, and early 80s mm-hmm. was was my film school and what made me fall in love with movies so so me and reading entertainment weekly every week and having read the book and like just just absorbing all of the media that I could. And this is all pre-social media, so you had to seek out sources of movie information. Yeah, yeah. Entertainment Tonight would have trailers. You couldn't watch trailers on YouTube. You had to go to the movies mm. to see the trailer. I was I was jacked. Like I was super pumped and geeked to see Jurassic Park on that on that opening night. I couldn't have been more excited. <laughs> you had to be present with somebody to get their fan reaction. <laughs> yes exactly exactly <laughs> but it's those rare moments where like the entire theater was was electric like you there's movie i remember seeing avatar for the first time and just like collectively the whole theater being like what are we what are we watching this mm-hmm. is incredible mm-hmm. and there's very few movies that have that level of electricity but jurassic park was just there is not a bad frame a bad line of dialogue a bad bit of acting just nothing and then on top of it the mind-blowing special effects, yeah, that yeah. Like revolutionary loop going from Abyss, Terminator 2, <laughs> into this, like, dinosaurs are real, and I believe them in a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that the, the the marketing campaign for Jurassic Park had the novel in it. Like, yeah. all the, the movie details were on the back of the book. It was a big part of, of marketing the film. It was, hey, it's also a book. Go check out the book. Yes. And, and uh it came out, the book was published in March. It would have been pretty much at every grocery store, at every pharmacy. It would have been mm-hmm. everywhere that you could go buy a book. And so getting your hands on that book wasn't hard. And, and you had months in advance to read or reread or whatever uh, through that thing, all you wanted. And certainly you saw it coming. You said you read it before the movie came out. What, um, I mean, having just watched the trailer for the, for the movie, what made you say, wow, I got to get the book as soon as possible and read that? I had, I had read the book around the time that they said that Steven Spielberg was going to be adapting it into a movie. Okay. And when I learned what the concept, I hadn't, I hadn't read anything else that Michael Crichton had done. I think I'd seen the, like the older Westworld movie, but didn't, didn't realize he was the author of it. Um, I wasn't an ER fan, so I hadn't seen, or ER came after. I can't, I can't remember whichever one came first. It'd be around the nineties for sure. And yeah, so I wasn't, that was my entry point to Michael Crichton as well, which then I blew through everything he'd ever, ever published. Um, I, it was just the idea of like bringing dinosaurs back to earth, being, being a huge science fiction fan. And then just knowing that my favorite director was going to, to adapt it. I'm like, Oh, this sounds interesting. I was an avid reader. I'd blown through most of Stephen King's collection. So always looking for something Mm -hmm. new. And I was, uh, I was a big fan of, uh, not doing my work in class and just sitting in the back of the <laughs> class and reading some like you know Timothy's on Star Wars novel or Stephen King or or Michael Crichton and the book the book is uh, you know I I think in, in a lot of ways the movie is so good that the book is almost forgotten I know it must still be like well read but you just you stop thinking about Jurassic Park as a book because the movie is so iconic and was done so well and was such a huge hit. But I, I remember the I remember the fascination of the science detail in the book, and just loving how mm-hmm. real it felt. Where you're like, this? Why isn't this possible? Mm-hmm. We probably mm-hmm. if we did find DNA one day, well, we 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 could Jurassic Park could become real, and I, I love that aspect to it. That it was this big fun 
adventure story, but but it was rooted in what felt like real science. It felt grounded for a change mm-hmm. than some mm-hmm. of the other sort of far-fetched science fiction I've been watching. You got an excellent point that I think a big part of the phenomenon that made Jurassic Park bigger than what it was, because it, it captured everyone's imagination. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a thing on screen. Was that the science seemed believable enough. It sold it well enough that I think there was a genuine feeling like this isn't so far-fetched. And and nobody was uninterested in cloning a dinosaur. Everybody was like, okay, yeah, like as soon as we can, let's yeah. do that right away. Regardless of the lesson learned in the film was that you can't do that, it's a bad idea. Uh, everybody's like, no, 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 we're down for that. Um, bring on the end of the world and dinosaurs. We'll take it. <laughs> and and, and even, in the, even in the transition too, I, I, and it's brilliant because, you know, the book is, is very dense with the information. But the genius of, uh, is, is it Kep? Is that how you pronounce it, David Kep? I'm not sure how you pronounce the writer's last name. Coep, Kep, I've never known. K-O-E-P-P, yeah? yeah Kep, Coep. Uh, let's just call him <laughs> David. We're on first name basis. Yes. David's scripts, uh, you know, the, the genius of, of them getting to the visitor center and being shown the Mr. DNA video yeah. Yeah. That, that breaks down for the characters, but also t- does all the expedition dump in a fun way that's not just john hammond or a scientist yes. sitting across the table from them like i'm in your blood i'm mr dna <laughs> like everybody remembers that and they just did it in such a fantastic way that that you know and it, it what i've always loved about this movie is the marketing for the theme park is the same as the marketing for the movie so what what anybody who would have gone to this Jurassic park theme park would have witnessed in like in that disney-esque way of, of being introduced to dinosaurs and how they brought them back is exactly the way that the characters in the movie and the way that us as the audience got to see it. Down to the fact that the logo for Jurassic Park, the, the physical park in the movie, is the logo for the movie. Like, how often do you get to do that? Have, you know, have the logo, the iconic dinosaur in a yellow circle and the bones of a dinosaur be the logo for the movie, which is also the practical logo in the park. Um, and nothing will ever beat the Jurassic Park tagline. I think it's the best bit of marketing ever done in the history of movie cinema, which is 65 million years in the making. Right on. You will never <laughs> find a better tagline than that movie. Whoever came up with that is a marketing genius. I think that logo came out with the book. I don't know that it was produced for the movie specifically. Although, you're right. I do understand that Spielberg demonstrated interest in the novel before it was published. So maybe there was some harmony in developing the the. the I remember the book I had a, I, the the book cover I had was white and the text was either red or blue and it did have a dinosaur bones on it and a bit of a circle around it but it wasn't it wasn't identical to what's in the in the movie that's the one that's it's the book one? I had yeah okay so it had red and blue yeah 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 <laughs> yeah and uh, that similar. logo is perfect you're right you that that, yeah. that image was unbelievable. It makes an interesting point. Spielberg, what I do know that he was interested in producing it as a movie, and and uh, Crichton was aware of that going into the before the book was out. So that's interesting. I guess yeah, yeah. Because Crichton was it, certainly marketing it. his ideas as potential movies all the time. It it must be nice to be in Spielberg's position. I mean, now still to this day, where you can sit on your throne and be like, find me books that haven't even been written yet, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I could potentially direct movies from. Let me pick the author's brain before they write a single word. <laughs> well, in, in terms of making the movie and that tagline, the 65 million years in the making, 
mm-hmm. refers back to 65 million years ago. If anybody were listening to this and didn't know that that is the extinction date, the end Cretaceous, uh, the end Cretaceous extinction date for for the dinosaurs when they all went uh, went extinct. And so I remember the inverse of that, 65 million years in the making, that all the publications at the time were saying 56 million dollars was what it cost to make the movie. Mm. And I went and fact checked that because I wanted to bring it up with you in terms of movie making, uh, having yep. having a budget of fifty six million dollars, and everything says no, 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 it's sixty five million dollars, and not everything, but like modern Wikipedia's and things like that say sixty five million. I was like, that's I remember it specifically, and it's just so sticky in my brain that I I, yeah. I had to keep looking. I, I didn't feel right, and so I don't know. We're, we live in an age where you, if you don't like what you see on the internet, you just keep looking on the internet until you find something and you do like, and then yeah, course, and then it's yeah. uh, and then you go, ah, I'm vindicated. And so I found. <laughs> um, uh, I found some reports from the Tampa Bay Times that published June 11th, 1993, saying that it was mm-hmm. um, 56 million bucks, which is what I remembered. But it said with the advertising, it would run probably about $100 million. And uh, the New York Times also said that they had in an article, and this was back uh, months before it came out, that I guess Universal was kind of going through like a weaker period. Not a lot of their movies had been big, big hits. Yeah. And so they delayed production on a lot of stuff. And they were really putting all their eggs in one basket with Jurassic Park. And so I guess the marketing must have come out very, very early because the book was out by March. They must have known, hey, the book, sorry, the, that special edition of the book that went with along with the movie, it came out in March. They must, I think they were advertising as early as the Super Bowl, but I don't know if that's true. I don't remember when I saw the first teaser for Jurassic Park. I remember the teaser, but I don't remember the release date. But back then, movies were generally three to six months in advance of release. Not like now, where sometimes we get teasers a year, a year and a half out. You mm-hmm. know? Well, except for the odd one where there'd be like a James Bond or Indiana Jones, where they have a little teaser, like the map with the, the, the line following the plane. It'd be like a new Indiana Jones movie that's now <laughs> in production, you know, like, and they'd sell you on the countries and the locations they were going to be shooting it in. But yeah, I, I think the. I, I've always known Spielberg says he generally has tried to keep his budgets around sixty million. Like he's a very yeah. economical filmmaker, uh, and and a hundred million total, including marketing, makes sense because generally they say double the budget, and and that's what they spent on the movie and the marketing as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So that that makes sense. I I had the VHS of the making of Jurassic Park, oh, like yeah. a half hour special that I probably like wore wore out. I watched. <laughs> I, you know, again, back then, no YouTube, DVD didn't exist with all these wonderful yeah. special features. So when you would get a making of, especially for stuff that ILM had done, because, you know, being a Star Wars fan as a kid and experimenting with stop motion, all this stuff, I, I was obsessed. But that, that one was really interesting to show the transition, the history of stop motion into what they what they invented for Jurassic Park. Yeah. And I remember all the... And and now, uh, you know, they, they recap a lot of that in the uh, the movies that made us on Netflix, which is a, an ep- excellent episode about doing direct. But my favorite thing yeah. from that whole making up is, um, you know, legendary stop motion artist Phil Tippett saying like, oh, I think I'm, think I'm out of a job when he first saw the dinosaur <laughs> run cycle test in the CG. And Spielberg leaned forward and said, don't you mean extinct? And I'm like, that's <laughs> <laughs> harsh. That's All funny. Right. <laughs> it's harsh, but, but funny. Yeah. You make an interesting point that we had to get everything on VHS, but... Like, it reminds me that even, like, the rarest stuff, you used to mail away and get cassettes in the mail for something you didn't even know yeah. what it was. You just heard it was cool. Like, I think Tom Green, didn't he come out on VHS? He had, like, something on maybe, cable maybe, in Ottawa yeah. that nobody saw. But every but people who did see it were like, you gotta, you got to see this weirdo. 
And so you would <laughs> you would buy these VHS cassettes because they weren't on any TV. They weren't yeah. broadcast anywhere. And, and you, you couldn't find them on YouTube or anything like that. Anyhow, I remember he got his start like selling VHS cassettes of him uh, defacing his parents' basically car, house, whatever he get his hands on. He would make a video I, of their yeah, reaction of him ruining their things. But I also remember, like, because this wasn't like a double pack where you bought the movie and you got the V. I went out and spent fifteen dollars to buy a fifteen-minute making of a movie, which, like, yeah, that's insane that there would be a market for that. Because now it would just be like, it better be on YouTube. It better be on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, just not. So it begs the question: If you had fifty-six million dollar budget to produce a film and another forty million to market it, uh, what kind of dinosaur movie would you make? <laughs> oh man, dinosaur specific, huh? Um, it's interesting because I, you know, as Jurassic Park has evolved, I can have fun with each of the movies. I'm, I'm not a, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the odd people that likes Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom more than I liked Jurassic World. Because mm -hmm. I thought Jurassic World just, it, it's the Force Awakens thing where they just reskin re the original movie and update it a little bit. But I thought Fallen Kingdom, like, this is just a monster movie. This is what I want. Trap some people in a house and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and give me chaos. So I... Uh, I just, and I keep thinking, like, you know they're going to make more, even though they say this is the final film, there will be lots more Jurassic Park movies. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was thinking about that, like, what do you do to, you know, you could do a prequel to Jurassic Park, which is an incident that happened in the testing labs or on the island before they ever brought visitors there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some some half-mutated dinosaurs, just, just, just scale it back to, you know, a couple people and and one lo one location of, of like a real monster monster mm -hmm, movie mm -hmm. but typically are you supposed to in part four you're always supposed to go to outer space so maybe <laughs> maybe maybe elon moss opens opens mars like you know what there's not a lot to do here he's like you know what i i bet you i have enough money to bring dinosaurs back for real let's put some dinosaurs on mars let's you know what what's the next closest planet to mars we got jupiter let's let's inhabit jupiter as a real jurassic world and you can you can take spring vacations from mars to jupiter see real dinosaurs here it is here and, it is uh, yeah. here, here's the treatment they find fossils in the earth of mars i don't know if you call it that the ground of mars yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. the earth of mars you and yeah. and they, they in, say, the, well, in the in the in the mars of mars yes they find, yeah yeah they find red fossils oh that'd be so cool and then um and then they're like well we'll just use uh jurassic park technologies to uh, just figure out what these things were, we don't need to do any paleontology. We just we'll just yep. clone the clone the uh, genes out of it, and then uh, we'll find out what they are. And then, of course, the only thing that could stop whatever these extinct fossilized remains of Mars are are dinosaurs. And so, to save our people, we need to import dinosaurs into it, it, it's like the alien versus predator model, but alien versus dinosaur. This thing writes itself, uh, and and it's Chris Pratt's grandson. Uh, his character's grandson that that is working as a botanist on on Mars that uh, is able to piece this together and and, and Roland Emmerich will direct. And Blue uh, needs a spacesuit. He needs like a jetpack yeah. uh, that he's smart enough to use because he's a smart and 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 a chimpanzee. <laughs> I'm I'm, cur I'm curious to see this new movie because you know you're like okay the dinosaurs are out they're rounding them up. But then suddenly it looks like he's on like the streets of Rome on a motorcycle. Like he's yeah. I'm just like, wait a minute. How big is the scale of this movie? Huh? It's, I don't know what they're doing. I've tried to stay away from the spoilers for the, for the Dominion. But yeah, it looks like, looks like uh, they're going to be everywhere <laughs> somehow. And I keep saying it, you know, I watch the trail and I go, 
eh, good use of good remix of the song. It gets you all nostalgic. You're bringing back the characters. Everybody loves that nostalgia. The member berry, the South Park member berries are high on this movie. And I go like, eh, and then Sarah, and my, my wife says, you're going to go see it. I'm like, I know I'm going to see it, but <laughs> yeah. it's still a, eh. <laughs> Even the worst of us have to tune in just to see how much we hate it. And the rest this of us is, will true. enjoy it and, uh, and as much as we can. Audience, audiences are always the problem. People go like, they made another Batman. I'm like, but everybody paid to go see it. So, of course, they're going to keep making them. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what the runtime on the new one's going to be. It, I just got an essay, coincidentally. It yeah. is two hours and 26 minutes, I believe. It is the longest Jurassic Park movie to date. Now that extra 20 minutes better be just amazing. <laughs> have you seen have you seen the opening scene that they released like yeah. the IMAX theaters like Neat, last eh? summer? That, I don't know if that's actually making it in the movie but it should it's kind of a really interesting idea that that's the mosquito okay I got a weird theory that, on yeah. that and, and like oh this is part of like seeing things and getting spoiled and stuff like that so I got a theory do you think so that opening sequence if anybody hasn't seen it portrays kind of dinosaurs in Cretaceous times and the Tyrannosaurus mm-hmm. gets murdered and then he wakes up or she wakes up after being cloned. And I don't know whether or not she has memories from her past life or not. Oh, I don't even know if I saw it that far. I just saw, like, the scene I saw was, like, dinosaurs living 65 million years ago and then a mosquito landing on the skin. Right. So two dinosaurs fight each other. Uh, The Tyrannosaurus dies. Mosquito sucks the Tyrannosaurus's blood. We're to believe that this is the Tyrannosaur that was cloned. Yes, yes. And then we flash forward to Tyrannosaurus modern world running around and he like goes to a drive-in theater and that's a see i i, I saw just the clip that the bad youtube cam version that i watched oh, yeah? from, from from a theater it just cut off after the mosquito so well it begs the question whether or not that tyrannosaur would have any connectivity to her primal clone self or not and if it does what does that mean for Maisie, who is the clone of um the the daughter of, we uh, should from get. The one. We should get Miss Cleo to weigh in on this <laughs> yeah. and talk about if dinosaurs believe in past life or not and uh, reincarnation. Because that could be fascinating. She has some memory that returns to her uh, from from her past life. Because there's there's suspicions that and she may not have just died in something as innocent as a as innocent air quotes as a like a car accident or something like that. That there might be something. So because they were killed by. You know the heat and fire of a meteor striking the earth it the messaging will be that this dinosaur is actually here to warn us about climate change because it doesn't want us to suffer the same fate that her, mm-hmm. her clone mm-hmm. ancestor did got it it's now the movie's woke it's ready to go <laughs> put it out in june but he needs that the terrible ending like uh, the gremlins ending where the, the 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 shop owner returns he goes you did not listen <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it takes yep. the dinosaurs back, and that's why we have to go to Mars afterwards for the, for Jurassic Park two O or whatever it's going to be called. And I remember there was a rumor like a couple of years ago that like Universal's going to team up a Fast and the Furious and Jurassic Park movie, <laughs> where, you know they're going to have to send in Vin Diesel and the fast cars to round them up. And I'm like, you laugh, and you're kind of like, it's like I joke like, hey, Disney owns Star Wars and Marvel now. Who, and, you know, it's a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, and can completely plausible that thor could end up in the star wars galaxy you know if they just decided to be like you know what we really want more money and we have no um, <laughs> no discretion of taste on, on how the peter jackson model properties. of filmmaking is uh peter jackson likes <laughs> it when 
your money is his money is I think how it works out. Yep. So we've both seen uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park 3. And, mm-hmm. and then what they've done with the Jurassic World franchise has been entirely different. They've been able to breathe an entirely new life and, and obviously new sources of revenue are, are, are hemorrhaging out of these things. They're, they're, yeah. Which, I mean, if he had just done like a traditional Jurassic Park 4 where somebody stumbles and winds up on a random island <laughs> and has to yeah, fight yeah. a new dinosaur that nobody knew was there, uh, wouldn't have worked quite as well. It would have been kind of goofy. But th- this they've done a really good job with. I like I like the concept of Jurassic World better than the the execution of the movie. The idea that humans never learn from past mistakes, that when money's involved or profit can be made, uh, it's it's a little bit of a wink to the the studios always rebooting things as well, right? They're like, we'll just reboot the park, and you know, like people aren't impressed with regular di- dinosaurs have been around for twenty years now. It's old news. We mm-hmm. need bigger, mm-hmm. stronger, faster dinosaurs. So give it to them. There won't be any consequences if we do that. <laughs> and 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 that was a big part of the book we know that hammond was re- re- ready to run it back even though this park yeah. was basically smoldering in in blood <laughs> as as the book ends he's uh to his dying breath saying i'm gonna do build it back better i'm gonna do i'm gonna do this all over again in better places of the world which makes some sense i mean the, i think in the book they keep talking about how they don't have a very good dock and so they had to like expedite getting in and off the island while the weather was yeah. good like get out while the going's good because uh, we don't have a good dock. You wouldn't pay. You wouldn't invest to have a good dock on here. I don't know how they, in therefore, intended to ship many people to visit the island at any point. If everybody's going to be helicoptered in, like that, have been crazy. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I've never looked at a. I've never looked at a map to consider the exact location of that island from from the mainland. Well, it's a, we know it's a hundred miles in a helicopter to get there, or by boat. But the boat, there's no good docks for the boat. So how to get in and out? Is Probably they might have yeah it would it would have to build a bigger dock and have a cruise ship mm-hmm. so there you go but as a that's lab the movie. but as that's a lab the movie. yeah <laughs> we cut we cut twenty years later um, Jurassic World is fully open haven't had an incident in years and one dinosaur gets on that cruise ship mm-hmm. that takes takes the passengers home and that's your movie one dinosaur versus mankind on a on a cruise ship that could be interesting Isol- too. isolated horror film yeah just have a little you, mini have budget you, have, yeah yeah have you yeah. not have you watched the trailers for the latest film? I saw one. It was okay. probably one that was on TV. I haven't looked too closely. Okay, I will. I, I won't say it then. There's something. There's a shot, specific shot in there where I'm like, nah, okay, that's where the franchise. That'll be the next one. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I know they've got a series of books coming out. They look mm-hmm. like children's books. Um, called like I Nate. haven't watched the cartoon. People seem to like the cartoon. Yeah. Camp- Cretaceous, is that what it is? I haven't seen it either. We haven't got Netflix, but uh, the idea is that, yeah, they're able to do all kinds of neat stuff with it. But yeah, I mean, they're going to do, there'll be some sort of legacy for this afterwards, whether it'll be, you know, formal two and a half hour long blockbusters or not, I don't know, but I'm sure they'll find a way to continue to monetize the idea. (laughs) It'd be interesting. I'm always interested in the series approach too, because some of these movies are so big and bloated. And they're just they're just throwing information at you when you're like, oh, you know, what if we, what if we did the Mandalorian as a TV series instead of a, a movie? And then you've got some breathing room to actually spend time with the mm-hmm. characters mm-hmm. And, and develop the idea. So it could be it could be interesting. I just saw a joke about that. It was um, I forget who the character was, but it was somebody I think probably from Book of Boba Fett. How he gets more time to learn who this character is than you get in the three movies with Finn. <laughs> 
you yeah. know, this time that uh, it, it's taking down the taking the stakes down sometimes is worth it instead of trying to raise the stakes and not really knowing what to do anymore. Because it's hard to have one person responsible for intergalactic fates, you know? <laughs> like, how do you boil that down to a single person and, and make that a plot? Yeah, Star Wars, Star Wars does a, a bad job, in my opinion, of like everything that's ever happened to this galaxy. It's one of 15 characters that are responsible for it. And we yeah. never we never stretch too far from theirs. Like uh, Obi-Wan and, and uh the Obi-Wan series coming out. I'm like, okay, now we're literally filling, we've almost filled in every hour of every day of every month of every year of Obi-Wan's life. Like, we, we know where he does his banking. We know his sleep routine. We know, you know, we know where he went to college. We know all of it now. I think, I, I was going to say, with Jurassic Park 3, talking about stripping it back, you know, it, it sometimes is like people's like least favorite of, of the franchise, but, and I know it wasn't Spielberg that directed it, so it was a departure, but I remember going to a theater it's got the shortest runtime, if I remember, like 86 minutes or 92 minutes. It's it's like just very clean cut 90 minute movie, maybe 95 minutes. And but they get everybody on the island within like six minutes of the movie and we're off to the races of being. So I'm like, what else did you want from a Jurassic Park movie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They didn't give you 25 minutes of exposition. They just said. Um, you know, art. There's the deception of why they're going to the island, and you find out it's a rescue mission, and boom, they're being chased and attacked by dinosaurs. And I like that they fold in the, uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, the, the the massive bird cage, the dome that's that's in the original Jurassic Park book. Yeah. But they were able to like still be extracting from the original source material to to bring back things that were cut from the the original Spielberg movie. Um, so I, I had I had fun with it. Obviously, obviously, it's got one of the stupidest moments in cinema history with the dream sequence where Alan looks over on the plane and the you know, the Velociraptor says, "Alan." That's a tough <laughs> choice, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's fine. It's just like it's so funny to see it on YouTube for years. Like even a couple months ago, it came up in a meme of something I was looking at. It's like out of context. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder. But I like the Spinosaur. I thought the adventure on the island was good. I thought the raptors looked good yeah. in the third one. It, there was so okay. much in that book that it it has it still colors uh, things that are happening. There's a there's a in Fallen Kingdom. They're still using lines for Malcolm that were in the book. It's incredible. Oh really? Okay. Five movies later, they're still going back to the source and using material they haven't touched yet. I think in in the original Jurassic Park, obviously some of the best casting of all time. Because um, those characters remain iconic, those performances are iconic, mm-hmm. and and you know in in the you know wow factor of, of the dinosaurs and Spielberg's brilliant direction, those crane shots going over the fence as the electrocution is about to happen, mm-hmm. uh, all all of that. I mean the uh, the the comedy in action of the objects and mirror closer than they appear when yeah. when trying to outrun the the T Rex must go faster. All of the performances almost are the thing that get talked about the least, but everybody in that movie is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and I feel the movie does a good job of expanding on the characters in the book. Like they, they all feel much more fleshed out that the comedy, the quirks of the characters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the movie uh, aren't there on page as much from what I remember, as, especially in the case of uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum, who just, you know, yeah. steals the show in every scene he's in in that. They definitely, they definitely feel like real life people kind of operating in a in a really amazing environment. Whereas, like you'll get crime procedurals, and you know that people are just on their mark, and they never move, yeah. <laughs> and they're given their 
exposition and then you move on to the next scene and it never feels like that they're always looking at the tires of the car and they're looking at uh eggs at the incubator and everywhere they go they're inspecting the plant material or something like that everybody's up to something wayne knight was terrific (laughs) (laughs) in terms of Uh (laughs) every Uh little bit of it was uh you're right spielberg really shared a vision that got everybody everybody on set when the cameras were rolling to be as alive and interactive in that environment especially when you couldn't even see most of the creatures that were like yeah. inserted afterwards which this would be one of those earlier times where you didn't have something on set to represent well it wasn't it wasn't as standard at that point that you know actors of this generation that have done any kind of effects movies like okay yeah yeah i know, I know where it's going to be i understand the process i've been through this but that's the uh look at that uh uh, tennis ball on the end yeah. of those three meter sticks taped together. <laughs> That's the head of the dinosaur. It's coming for you. Like I always say, like sometimes the effects movies, people don't get enough credit for their acting and reacting to things that that aren't there. Which technically is doing a theater play. It's not always it's not always there in front of you. But Jeff Goldblum and his uh yeah, but John, when the Pirates of the Caribbean break down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Like there's so <laughs> many good lines, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, eventually, there are going to be dinosaurs on this dinosaur tour, correct? Yeah. I really do hate that, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the the question everybody wanted to hear is if um, if you were able to direct your talented wife Sarah Booth in any role from any of the films, which would be the most rewarding for you? Oh man, that's a good question. I would. Um, I have nothing against. Bryce Dallas Howard, but I I would give her character a reboot with Sarah in it. Yeah, I think that can't. We'll lose the high heels, which I know isn't her her choice as an actor. I would lose the high heels and give her a little bit more grit. Um, I I I don't buy Bryce Dallas Howard with her like fake grit. You know, I just she just seems too soft to ever ever have learned from anything and and, and really be that kind of adventurer badass girl. She doesn't clench her jaw. Just Clint Eastwood. Ish. Yeah, it's just, just it's, I can just, although there's this awesome, I haven't watched the trailer, I don't want to give it away, there's an amazing shot of her in this trailer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're going to, yeah, I think everybody's going to be challenged in a lot of different ways that are going to be what, very is that Is that June when that gets released as well? I think they've made it a, uh, an ambition to always release them kind of on an anniversary weekend from the June 11th, uh, 93. Mm. So as, I think it's going to be as close to June 11th, whatever the thursday night is because everything's thursday night at midnight you get your midnight screening and then that somehow thursday night is part of the weekend take or i don't know how it all plays out well it's like thursday 8 p.m now it's not even midnight well it depends if it's four hours long (laughs) it just has to end after midnight and then it's technically a midnight screening and therefore counts as that the way that works okay isn't that goofy there's a i also like you know it's, it's just a product of getting old but the the fact that Jurassic Park next year will be 30 years old yeah. blows my mind because I like, and I, I couldn't even tell you how many times I saw it in the cinema mm-hmm. after I did successfully get my driver's license. <laughs> I must have gone up. I no less. I was still seeing it in theaters in 94 because I remember when speed came out, they had a double screening of speed and you could stay to watch Jurassic Park afterwards for free. So I was still seeing it in cinemas a year later. Right on. I pro- I might have owned it on VHS at that point. I can't remember when the home video came out, but that has to be one of the best-selling home videos of all time as well. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you see it in 3D when they released the, the anniversary edition? I, I did see it in 3D. We were, Sarah and I were in Montreal. We went with our good friend, Rochelle, who also loves Jurassic Park. So we, we saw the IMAX 3D redo, which is just, I, uh, any, I've seen it in drive-ins, you know, I, um, right on. I've seen scenes from it done. I went to go see one of the John Williams nights at the Hollywood bowl. And they play scenes from the movie with the live orchestra doing the music. So that, that was incredible. I've used that soundtrack. I had the CD. So in high school, whenever I had like an English project or something where I was allowed to make a short film, like the cues from the Jurassic park score were always, always used in there somewhere. That, um, that's, that's true too. Like, you know, it's John Williams where you're like, okay, he's, he's done star Wars. He's done Superman. He's done Indiana Jones. <laughs> he, he can't have any more good ideas. And, and, and him and Spielberg both get the credit for this in the same year, they made Jurassic park and Schindler's list. Yeah. Yeah. And did, and he did the music for both. To, they both did two of their absolute best pieces back to back where most people get exhausted and tired and one project gets phoned in while the other one had all the energy and nope they both are just at the top of their game and and nailed it and I, I think people forget about that too that like Spielberg is the GOAT alone just for having accomplished that in 1993 he made his Oscar winner and the Oscar winner of all the technical awards yeah, yeah. And, and one of the biggest blockbusters of all time in the same year. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned sticking in lines with, with Spielberg that you saw E.T. in theater, that you're a big mm-hmm. fan of Spielberg's early work. Spielberg had a way of taking kind of a big subject and bringing it down to not a children's level, but a level mm-hmm. that children can certainly access. That kind of makes them feel like they're part of the adult conversation. Yeah. Are there elements that are, stick out from Jurassic Park that benefited most from Spielberg's attention? But yeah, I think the you know he he's got an amazing way of, of directing children. Obviously, E.T. with Drew Barrymore and and Henry Thomas being one of the best. Uh, yeah, but it is really interesting that you know it's it's the same way that the great Disney cartoons and Pixar cartoons work on two levels. It's a kids' movie at heart, but the the adults get a different level of humor. Sometimes there's jokes just that you know being able to write a joke that works for kids one way, but then also has like a smirkier level for adults. The the interaction and seeing a lot of the movie, never placating that the kids are just sidekicks that are there to be in danger. There there mm-hmm. is much a part of the the action and the problem solving and and the chase and the curiosity of the island mm-hmm. as much as. And I also always love that the kids are there because. The wonderment, it's, you know, you get to see all the adults have the same wonderment as the children, you know, mm-hmm. that they're blown away by seeing dinosaurs that returns them to what it's like to be a kid. And, and just, you know, that it started with Jaws, right? The Jaws, a movie about a killer shark and a sheriff trying to go out on a boat and, and <laughs> harpoon it so they can end the nightmare. But there's that beautiful scene with him and his son at the, at the dinner table and his son, and he's, he doesn't, he, doesn't realize at first and then he catches that his son's mimicking like his every move and they just share this quiet unspoken moments uh and some of that it feels like with alan grant like having to sort of care for these kids even though he didn't really want kids and that was part of this relationship strain yada 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know just just all those quiet moments are what make great movies it's not about the big bombastic action and that's where most of the marvel movies i think like lose their hearts and, and have like lost their way to like, nope, this is what the audiences want. But it's like, no, we're missing all those human moments. If you're going to make a two and a half hour movie anyways, can't yeah. 45 minutes of it be about the humans? We yeah. don't need just 
what I call like, it looks like they're just shaking tinfoil in your face, like a Transformers <laughs> movie where you can't tell what's going on. It's just yeah, explosions yeah. And, and fighting endlessly. I think Spielberg does a terrific job in, in having the, the children. It wasn't just about Grant keeping them safe. Mm -hmm. They had to win Grant over by the end of the film. And so they had to fill a need that he didn't know he had. He had to meet them halfway Mm -hmm. And they asked him provocative questions. They annoyed him at first, but he came to really appreciate, like, what does it mean to, to care for someone else and stuff like that? And they had to reciprocate in a way. And the work that Ariana and, and Joe do in the kitchen scene, the work they do at the top of the tree, when they're growing over that fence, I mean, those are times where those are real kids in real peril that you cannot, they're not selling, you know, faking it. They're not mailing it in. You yeah. really buy it. And uh, I don't know how deep a, a, a child actor can dig into their personal experience to, sure, <laughs> to come up yeah. with that. So they have to be, I would probably, Spielberg really had to motivate them in some way. Hopefully not by like just terrifying them, but <laughs> by really trying to draw something real out of those performances. Because they were, they were legit. Yeah, have you ever seen the famous clip of Henry Thomas's audition for E.T. where Spielberg, you can hear him behind the camera being like, you got the part, kid. Like it's a, yeah, he's, he's got a real gift for directing or, or just find, you know, working with, uh, it's, a, it's, it's Jane Hershon and Janet Jenkins, I think, that cast Jurassic Park. They're, you know, they're okay. two of the greatest in, in history for casting. They've, if you look them up, they've cast everything you've ever seen for like three decades. Every, every movie that mattered, so to speak. I also like the children, the, the fact that they're, John Hammond's grandkids and the people that are going to have to protect them when everything goes wrong are people that don't necessarily like John Hammond or believe he's done the correct thing in even opening this park. And, and they were people that were not consulted mm -hmm. in the process of developing the park. They were brought in at the last minute. Uh, it's almost like bringing in a safety inspector once you've built a house without, you know, those are the people you want to consult at the beginning and look at the blueprints before you come in and realize you've you built a house that will get taken out by the first tornado. All of them could have been selfish and just said, like, F these kids, I'm getting the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he, he had to rely on, on people who, who thought he was, you know, a bonehead to some degree that yes you did it but i mean it's the famous line i use it all the time the uh every time i watch a bad movie i was cool like yeah but just because you could you never stop to think if you should yeah <laughs> and that's classic that really is a, an important moment in most of our lives <laughs> yes <laughs> like, yeah, afterwards yeah. you regret something go whoops uh... <laughs> maybe i shouldn't have <laughs> <laughs> told you i could do it i should not have done that yeah yeah it's like, like, dude, yeah, I did that skateboard trick. Yeah, but you're telling me that you're sat in the hospital bed with two broken legs, so. <laughs> this has been terrific. I, and we hardly even got into uh, so many of the other films and stuff like that. Why don't you tell people, if they were interested in seeing what projects you have coming up in the future, where can people go to, to learn more about what it is? Sure. I mean, you can find me on Instagram easily, at Gavin Michael Booth. Mm -hmm. And the same for my website, it's just, uh, you know, www gavinmichaelbooth.com there's tons of short films and links to kind of what i'm up to i, I usually I, I try to be good about posting about what's what's coming up and what's going on mm -hmm. i also have been crushing the uh lego jurassic world game on my nintendo switch okay. i got out of video games from like super nintendo up until i bought a switch last year and i had no idea how fun the lego games are right so on. that's been that's been a lot of fun yeah we picked one up at the beginning of the pandemic and it took forever to get here but yeah. we find, when we finally got it, it's got is it the is it the same on the Switch? It's got um, Jurassic World, Jurassic Park, Lost World, 
and Jurassic Park 3 all in one? No, I oh. just have Jurassic World. Yeah, We I found think. it for a PlayStation 3, and it's got all four of these in Lego Jurassic Park. It's pretty I'm trying cool. To, I, I can almost reach my games. Let's see. <laughs> I But I also got the Skywalker Saga today. It's kind of, no, it's just Jurassic World. I'm sure oh, it's no, Four Jurassic Park conventions in one colossal video game. So maybe the other ones are on there, and I just haven't got there yet. Amazing. Well, you're going to love it. Full of cool yeah, I just I, I went I went nuts and bought like every game people recommended, and I'm just like, oh, this is gonna take me ten years to get through them all. I don't need it. But when when the Skywalker Star Wars game came out today or a couple of days ago, I'm like, must have. Mm-hmm. I'll never finish another screenplay until I finish it, but it's uh, it'll be fun. <laughs> I do have two feature films that I'll be directing this year, so I'm glad that the pandemic is is on you know is on a decline, yeah. and I can get back to making indie films. And I'll I'll just tease that one of those is uh, is a vampire piece. Okay. And I'm stupid excited about it because I, I haven't I'm I've written so many projects about vampires. I've done a couple music videos about vampires, but I haven't like dug my heels in and made a vampire movie. So it's taken forever to really find something that I feel stands out. And, and has something unique to say or something different because Vampire Space very crowded. You yeah, know? yeah. Bram, Bram Stoker did it all, and then there's so many great movies that have come out of it and comic books and everything else. I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta find my slant on it that I think is original. Mm-hmm. It's like the zombie genres got uh, a lot of people oh, jumped two, in all at two, once. I yeah. got two of those that have never been done either. That's cool. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm, hope, I'm, hope, I'm hoping, hoping to get to those too. Because a new twist can be can be game changing. That's for sure. So. And all the genre crossovers, like uh, Christopher Landon, who made Happy Death Day and Freaky with Vince Vaughn, like those are just super fun movies. Like, it's like Marvel's What If and comic book What Ifs a little bit. Like, what what if uh, what if we did Groundhog's Day with a, a serial killer, and every time she dies, she wakes up again in the morning that she's gonna <laughs> die. I'm like, that's so much fun. Yeah. Well, did you have fun? Would you come back and do this again? Absolutely, because that's the thing. This is just getting my brain going. Yeah, and so then much. what? I, what I would do in preparation of next time, I, I've been busy shooting in Toronto, but in preparation of next time, I'd actually go watch, you know, Jurassic Park three again and and read the book again, and the the Lost World book because that that would be a whole other conversation. The yeah, the difference between the book and the movie and why they would have even chosen to leave out some of the best parts of that book. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I can't even remember how that book ends anymore. And I, I know I, that yeah, I wrote it's, it down. It's been a, I got it whatever day it came out. I, I bought and read it. So it's been it's been that long since I read it. Well, when you come back, we can finally settle our our, um, our rap battle beef. We you can... know what? I'm I'm gonna practice. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write a rap battle uh, about uh, a guy who hosts a Jurassic Park podcast for 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 my next appearance. It'll be called Eighth Concession instead of Eight Mile. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna hire one of my musician friends in the hip hop community to remix John Williams' score, so I got a sick beat that references the movie, and then yeah, I'll I'll do my my best boring ass Canadian white guy rap attempts. Yeah. My my trick is to say turn me up, and then you get the uh, the the sample track going real high. Yeah, you can't hear me the whole time. Yeah, I yeah. just look yeah. like I'm. <laughs> That's yeah. the trick. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope you had a good time. And um, everybody, I hope you get a chance to visit his website and uh, follow him along because it's uh, been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun following all the things you've been doing. I can't wait for um, Last Call 2. Last Call 2, Star 69, when it comes out. <laughs> we've actually, she calls him back. That's, yeah. that's, we, we've, we've joked that, uh, spoiler alert, uh, no, it doesn't matter, that Beth, the character on the other end of the phone, that like, you know, we always joke like, well, that ends... 
and then she still got to go back and finish <laughs> finish her work. And we always joke that she goes back in, and the phone rings again. She picks it up, and it's it's President Trump. Like, hello, I'd like to order pizza. And she's like, what? And he, or no, sorry, he's trying to. Sorry, he thinks he's dialing the red phone to like start a nuclear war. Okay. And Beth Beth has to pretend that she's a pizza place, and wouldn't that be more interesting? And keep him on the phone to talk about a nuclear war and like just distract her. So she ends up becoming Earth's mightiest hero. Yeah. Last call, party line. Hi there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, there's too many people calling. <laughs> I was just looking for singles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a hard movie to joke about, but there's some good jokes. Yeah. No, 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 my bad, my bad. <laughs> Actually, yeah. if people get a chance to see that, that's won awards, yeah? It did, it did wonderful at film festivals. And, and uh, just last year, 2021, it ended up on Harper Bazaar's list of the 10 best movies. Yeah which is incredible for the lowest of low budget indie films in Canada without mm -hmm. any stars that were on a list against Netflix, Malcolm and Marie from the creator of, you know, Utopia and, and not Utopia, Euphoria and, uh, and so many other great movies. So it, it's been a real thrill to watch something that we just made out of pure passion. Mm -hmm. Thought we had a great idea and a great you know, method to tell it in the single take. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fact that anybody watches any independent movie ever is a minor miracle. So to, to make it on, <laughs> lists like that and win some awards from film festivals it's uh it's it's been incredible and to anybody who hasn't seen or heard of it um the single take split screen do you want to describe mm. that a little bit like it's a, a yeah heck of a story yeah. b it's a heck of an execution like there's a lot to it the movie is told in a true single take so there's no edits in the whole film but also split screen so it's we actually had two camera crews in two different parts of the city filming simultaneously and the movie revolves largely around two people that are strangers connected by a telephone call because the plot is uh, Scott, our, our protagonist, is attempting to call a suicide hotline. He's planning on ending his life and just wants some company on the phone while he does it. Uh, he's not trying to be talked out of it, but because he's been drinking and popping some pills already, he misdials by one digit and gets connected to this random stranger who is our character of Beth, who is a night janitor at a college who's expecting a call from her son because her cell phone's dead and gives gives the babysitter the college number to call. And when she answers, is now connected to this stranger that um, she can sense something's wrong. And as she starts to kind of question, she decides to do what all good humans should do and stay on the phone and see if she can't change the course of the night. So you're, we chose to shoot it in a single take so that you're sort of locked in with Beth, that you're experiencing all of the anxiety and the you know, most of us, I don't think would know what to say in that situation. And, you know, everything she says could be, she's actually technically the worst, like, hotline operator ever for like a suicide hotline or a crisis line, because she's saying very triggering things and asking all the wrong questions that are upsetting him. Uh, and, and the movie just becomes a really tense ride of like what, what the outcome of this night, and this phone call are going to be. It's amazing. There were, there were two other movies called Last Call released in 2021, so make sure you're oh. watching the correct Last Call. <laughs> It'll have my name on it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, don't call your movie Last Call if you're making a movie. That's my best advice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again. I really, really appreciate it. This has been incredible. The chapter this week is Cowan, Swain, and Ross, ranging from pages 49 to 51. And I can hear the Beastie Boys rock rapping this title in their Everybody Only Raps One Word of This Sentence for the Track Style. Like when they're doing the roll call in every song. Listing out who's rapping at ya. Oh, 
Mike D, RCA, and Ad Rock. <laughs> so here's a synopsis. Gennaro, Donald Gennaro, is instructed by his boss to accompany the consultants on their tour of Hammond's Resort, ensuring that the investments of theirs and of their investors they represent are safe. Plot points. Pressure from the EPA, construction delays at the resort, and disquiet from investors are putting Hammond under too much pressure. Reports from San Jose of a new lizard biting children exacerbates their situation. Quote, we can't screw around with this. We got to inspect that island right away, they say on page 49. An inspection is overdue. Gennaro has asked for the consultants already hired by Hammond, the paleontologist, paleobotanist, mathematician, Grant, Sattler, and Malcolm, respectively, and Gennaro will accompany them. Characters, we have Donald Gennaro. He doesn't feel cheerful on page 49. He wraps a phone call with Hammond saying he's aware of the rumors surrounding Hammond's resort and that it's behind schedule, that there's an EPA investigation and that investors are getting worried. He also says too many workers have died and now this business about living procomposite whatever on the mainland. There's an urgency to inspect the island because there have been too many deaths in construction and there are reports from San Jose of a new lizard biting children. We can't screw around with this. We've got to inspect that island right away. He doesn't believe Hammond nor trust him. Gennaro comes from a background in investment banking and was proficient in raising capital for high-tech clients who needed capitalization. He accompanied Hammond in raising funds to launch InGen, raising almost a billion dollars, beginning in 1982. It was a, quote, wild ride. Gennaro will accompany the site experts for the island inspection this week. Gennaro allows Hammond to invite guests to the island rather than to do it himself, knowing that Hammond is pretending that he's not in trouble, and by allowing that, He's serving as an enabler. He's intentionally feeding the lie in conversation with Grant, making it sound like an outing, but perhaps he's doing this to downplay the strange lizard fiasco on page 51. Daniel Ross is Gennaro's boss, a partner at Cowan, Swain, and Ross, who wears a pinstripe suit and is as, quote, cold as an undertaker. He believes Hammond is potentially dangerous and that they should, quote, never have gotten involved. Ross regrets taking general ownership stakes in lieu of fees and helping raise capital with Hammond on page 50, and Ross wants this, quote, Costa Rican situation resolved within a week. So I guess he gets what he wants, in a way. John Hammond, he ends a phone call with Gennaro. Gennaro reports to his boss that they cannot trust Hammond any longer because he's under too much pressure. Hammond is defiant that there is anything wrong about the island, despite reports of escaped animals and worker fatalities. Gennaro doesn't believe Hammond. Hammond employed Cowan Swain in 1982 to raise capital for InGen, meeting their investment banker Donald Gennaro. Hammond's a dreamer and an old man, says Gennaro. His plan was, quote, extremely speculative, and nobody, quote, really thought he could pull it off. Hammond's ability to strongly convince investors in his dream is greatly implied. He has a proven, powerful ability to be convincing. He's manipulative, though, insisting to invite the site experts himself to make it sound like he's invited them to showcase the island, rather than this being a mandatory proof of concept, or else he's going to get shut down. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm is revealed to have been openly hostile to Hammond's vision. Again, he's mentioned to be a mathematician, twice, and to be from the University of Texas in Austin. Dennis Nedry here is referred to as just a technical person who's going to review the park's computers and fix some bugs. Alan Grant receives a phone call from Gennaro reminding him that they know each other from a few years back. Ellie Sattler. She's considered a, quote, site expert by Gennaro, referred to as a paleobotanist on page 50, and considered with one of the consultants Hammond already hired early in the project, but she is 24 now, would only have been 20 in 1985, still an undergrad, only 19 in 1984, when Grant first began receiving consultancy checks from the Hammond Foundation. That's problematic. Is she really one of the experts hired early in the project? 
doesn't sound like it. She's also called a doctor by Donald Gennaro, who knows nothing about her, because Gennaro thinks that she's a man. <laughs> I look forward to meeting him, he says. And in this chapter, she's called a doctor, but is she really? She's a PhD student under Grant's supervision, but not a doctor. Localities, law offices of Cowan, Swain, and Ross. The San Francisco, California-based law offices of Cowan, Swain, and Ross is in this chapter. Eight years ago, they took 5% ownership in InGen in lieu of some fees. Jurassic Park. In this chapter, it's called Hammond's Costa Rican Resort, and we learn investors in the facilities are getting nervous because of rumors of problems, quote, down there. Also, too many workers have died, and now this business about a living pro comps at whatever on the mainland is making things more difficult. We have more stylistic techniques. Ellipses. Again, Crichton employs ellipses to create a pause in phone conversations, providing the illusion that part of a conversation is occurring beyond our ability to hear. We have more literary techniques. There's pathetic fallacy. A midday sun streamed into the law offices, giving the room a cheerfulness. Here, the sunshine adopts the human ability to give cheerfulness, when, of course, the sun is a ball of gas in the sky. It's only burning. The clouds are only there or not. They're not they have no human agency. Irony. Midday sun enlivens the office space with cheerfulness, but Gennaro does not feel it. And furthermore, his boss portrays a countenance cold as an undertaker. The realities don't match the expected atmosphere, suggesting some irony. Furthermore, Gennaro congratulates John Hammond, suggesting that there's reason to celebrate, but immediately tells his boss we can't trust Hammond anymore, showing that Gennaro isn't forthright with Hammond. Perhaps this is him being more facetious than ironic, but it's in the same vein. Things aren't what they appear. This isn't a cheerful day. Hammond has no reason to celebrate, no matter what the sunshine and pleasantries may lead you to believe. And simile, Daniel Ross is, quote, cold as an undertaker, suggesting he's grim, not lively, and serious. Motifs. The return of responsibility and safety emerges here. Gennaro tells his boss, Daniel Cowan, they cannot trust Hammond anymore because he's under too much pressure from the EPA investigation. Construction delays, worries from the investors. And then, after that, he adds that too many workers have died, and now this business about a living procomposite, whatever, on the mainland. These last two items, the, quote, too many dead workers and the dinosaurs on the mainland, appear to be on the down low, that these are additional worries that he and Cowan, Swain, and Ross are aware of, perhaps as a client privilege, what with them being lawyers. But now we've got multiple deaths on the hands of Hammond and Ingen, being exasperated by loose animals that are harming children in Costa Rica. And for further discussion, let's, let's talk a bit about body count. <laughs> there's going to be a body count in this book. Uh, Gennaro says that, quote, too many workers have died, and now this business about a living procomposite whatever on the mainland means that we're going to get a list of all those who have fallen victim to Jurassic Park. We can conclusively say that one person has died from dinosaurs on the island, the construction worker with the backhoe incident, and one off the island, the infant in the bassinet. So the confirmed body count is at two, though we know that there are more, and that's before any consultant stepped foot on the island. Criminal lawyer. Seriously, when the going gets tough, you don't want a criminal lawyer, right? You want a criminal lawyer. Know what I'm saying? That's a quote from Jesse Pinkman in Breaking Bad, of course. Obviously, what he was intoning is that you don't need a lawyer specializing in criminal law, but rather a lawyer who's willing to break that law. What kind of a law firm is Cowan, Swain, and Ross? We're told in the introduction that Daniel Cowan of Cowan, Swain, and Ross represented both the Japanese investors, and InGen, so that there was no unnecessary disclosure to keep any malfeasance under wraps. The Japanese consortia is said to shun publicity. Nonetheless, in the introduction, 
The law firm sounds like he was employed by both capacities for the purposes of keeping the InGen incident under wraps. But obviously, we're seeing here in this chapter that the firm already represents the investors group, are part owners of the investment too, and represent the Hammond Foundation and InGen. I'll have to get a legal expert on the show to discuss how something like that could happen. How do you vigorously litigate and advocate for your clients when you're employed on both sides? And we see in this chapter, obviously, they're not really on InGen's side. Clearly, the Japanese consortia must have much more money than InGen, who was described in the introduction as an unremarkable business, the, quote, third small American bioengineering company to fail that year. So what's at stake? Cowan, Swain, and Ross eight years ago accepted 5% ownership in general stock of InGen Corporation in lieu of service fees. And those fees were accrued by services rendered by investment banker Donald Gennaro, who helped them raise almost $1 billion. And that's set on page 50. And remember, Gennaro is more of an investment banker than he is a lawyer, despite his continued description as a lawyer and characterization in the film. From what I understand, accepting general ownership means they face, quote, unlimited liability, which generally speaking means that they, as owners, are legally responsible for all the debts and liabilities of the InGen Corporation. And InGen has proven to be a business where too many people are dying and now escaped lizards are infesting Costa Rica and harming children. Should they have known at the time that it was unwise to accept general ownership? They believed Hammond's ambitions were, quote, extremely speculative, and nobody thought he could pull it off. We're later told in the novel around page 135 that Gennaro raised $870 million with a pachyderm portfolio, which was projected to grow to be $7 billion by 1994. Accepting 5% ownership of $870 million suggests that their fees were equivalent to $4.35 million. Thus, the pinstripe suits Cowan wears, eh? If InGen was projected to grow in value to $7 billion by 1994, that $4.35 million becomes $350 million. However, the understanding is that it was tremendously unlikely that Hammond slash InGen were going to be able to successfully monetize their bioengineering dreams. It feels like they were taking a flyer on Hammond. Somehow he convinced them that he should, even though they felt it was extremely speculative and that he'd never pull it off, risk $4.35 million in lieu of cash, which a brilliant investment banker could probably grow. But could he grow it to $350 million? Who knows? <laughs> so this goes on to illustrate what a showman Hammond is. He's either convinced Gennaro or the firm at Cowan Swain that there is money to recoup in this investment, even though it seems entirely implausible. We know it goes bankrupt, meaning the corporation was terminated. The assets were napalmed, so there was nothing to sell off to recoup losses. And of course, there would have been significant liabilities to pay for the deaths and harm that came to everyone involved. Probably a lot of money there. Seeing as how the park never opened, and was such a closely guarded secret that they wouldn't have made any valuable partnerships or licensing, we should assume that they generate zero revenues, which is tough. This is a total loss. There would have been nothing left over with which to make payments, so that means that Japanese consortia and Cowan Swain and Ross would have had to pay out of their own pockets for all Jurassic Park's failures. The $870 million investment, all gone. And then plenty on top of that too in the settlements. Feminism. Gennaro misidentifies Dr. Sattler as a man on page 51, which I'm not sure how to read. Is this to imply that he and Grant get off on the wrong foot, as this is an awkward moment or a presumptuous mistake? Is it a broader comment about males dominating the STEM fields? Is this to play up the hilarity that when Gennaro first lays eyes on Dr. Sattler that he's not expecting a 24-year-old long-necked blonde bare-legged student in a work shirt tied at her midriff? I'm guessing it's the latter, but it could be a bit of all that stuff. Hilarious, right? 
Ellie Sattler, sticking with Ellie Sattler, something shudderingly problematic hit me while thinking about her relationship with Grant. Not about their relationship, they're great, but while thinking about their relationship, this came to me. Gennaro calls her Dr. Sattler and says it'll be nice to meet him on page 51, suggesting he does not know Ellie. Hammond also calls her Dr. Sattler, and Gennaro refers to Sattler as a, quote, site expert and, quote, paleobotanist, and lumps her with the consultants Hammond already hired early in the project. But she is now 24, as we're told on page 33 in August 1989. Grant discontinued accepting calls from Gennaro in the middle of the night about juvenile hadrosaurs in 1985, you'll remember. That was four years earlier, meaning at that point, Ellie was only 20. And he first received a check from Hammond Foundation as a consultant in 1984, when, mathematically, Ellie would have been 19. What I'm saying is, at 19, Ellie is at the most a college sophomore and perhaps even still a freshman. She's not consulting for tens of thousands of dollars as a paleobotanist as one of Hammond's early consultants, like Grant was in 1984. That said, she is a grad student by 24, so she must be fairly precocious to move through her undergrad and right into her postdoctoral research in only five years. But precocious or not, it's tremendously unlikely to have earned her PhD by 24 years old. Anecdotal evidence tells me that they take like four or five years to earn, and that's sometimes directly after earning an undergraduate degree, but more usually after earning a master's degree. What I'm arguing is Dr. Sattler is not a doctor of letters. We know she's not only a grad student, but she's Dr. Grant's student, so that reaffirms that she still is yet not a doctor. But there's something to be said for her being misidentified as a doctor throughout the novel. A specialist? Yes. A doctor? No. And that she doesn't correct anyone. Now that I think about it, does any, anyone even address her as Dr. Sattler? Or are they always just talking about Dr. Sattler? Maybe she doesn't even get called Dr. Sattler to her face. Who knows? People aren't talking to the female character. They're just talking about the female character. Also, perhaps we'll have a guest at some point who can answer whether it's common for someone pursuing paleobotany to have a vertebrate paleontologist as a supervisor. Yes, the specialties both have paleo in the title, but those are dramatically different fields of study, like the difference between specializing in aqua fitness and aquatic warfare. Grant later on describes her as his student to Tim on page 235. Quote, no, she's my student in graduate school. And I'm pretty sure it's frowned upon to call yourself a doctor before you've earned it. So how do we read this? She's not a doctor, but responds to being addressed as a doctor without a passing thought. Grant accepts this entitlement of Sattler as well. Is this just Crichton overlooking who and what his character Ellie Sattler is? She doesn't really get a backstory. She's just described a few times and then joins in on the action for the rest of the novel. There's something problematic with the attention that Crichton spent writing Sattler. And what that is will probably require more time cataloging how she's presented in the novel and then considering it as a whole. But my initial thoughts are that she's not a very well-rounded character and that Crichton spends more time describing how she looks than figuring out who she is. Granted, she gets to be a bit of a hero describing the toxic plants, carrying the stegosaur riddle and playing a part in surviving the velociraptor attacks. She's not a bad character. She's a hero. But it feels like Crichton didn't spend the time making her a real character. Which brings the next idea here that Jurassic Park isn't about our heroes. Sattler's lacking backstory, despite her status as a hero, bothered me, so I thought a bit more about it, settling on the idea that there are two classes of character in this novel. Those who are responsible for Jurassic Park, and those who are fleeing Jurassic Park. And there's a third type who I'll dig into another time. You're welcome to call in and guess who that might be if you'd like. I'd love to hear from you. This observation that Sattler is largely lacking a backstory starkly contrasts the observation that characters like Nedry, Arnold, Muldoon, Wu, and especially Hammond each have deep backstories and clearly described motivations. The characters who helped launch Jurassic Park get deep, 
thorough backstories that show their contributions to achieving this incredible feat, cloning dinosaurs. The novel isn't about our heroes. This novel is about Jurassic Park. It's about the people who brought it to life and primarily about John Hammond's dream and drive to realize his dream at all costs, whether ethical or unethical, but chiefly unethical. The novel is about the consequences of unethically pursuing a dream without being responsible for the power you wield. Compare that to our heroes. Grant's story is chiefly told through his professional accomplishments in academia. Sattler's is strongly lacking. Malcolm is interesting, but he plays the role of exposition if exposition were about providing context and perspective. And Lex and Tim are characterized by their quarreling as siblings and how they've been affected by their parents' divorce. So there are two classes of character, and each class should have their story read through one of two lenses, except for that earlier mentioned third type that we didn't get to. For our heroes, Sattler, Grant, and Malcolm, we read their stories as we observe how their expertise and appreciation for the quest for knowledge empowers their survival. They're just fascinated scientists who wind up having to face off against the things they've studied all their careers, testing their knowledge in a race to survive. That's pretty cool. The second class of character is the Jurassic Park enablers. They are irresponsible with the power they wield. We read their stories as cautionary tales as we observe how they've misplaced their belief in power and control as they fall victim to their hubris, dying at the hands of the things that they worked so hard to create. Once again, I want to say a great big thank you to my special guest today, Gavin Michael Booth. Check out uh, the details that I've put in the show notes. Follow the links and you can learn all about all the wonderful things that he's done and is doing and will continue to do. I also want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, and also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers for me I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Until next.